Hello, and welcome to Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people that teach it. I'm Joe Stoltz, and in this episode, uh, the founding director of the Washington Library, uh, now president and CEO of George Washington's Mount Vernon, Douglas Bradburn, uh, will have a chat with the new executive director of the Washington Library uh, at Mount Vernon in honor of the library's five-year anniversary. Happy birthday! Uh, so in honor of this uh, birthday episode, we also have on our website, if you'd like to uh, go to this episode page, uh, a timeline, a link to a, a, a fancy interactive timeline of major events in the library's history. Uh, and the podcast is mentioned because you love the podcast and we want to give you what you want. So to give you what you want and have me stop rambling, here are Doctors Butterfield and Bradburn, the Dr. B's. I'm sitting here with Doug Bradburn, President and CEO of Mount Vernon, and also my predecessor as the director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon. And Doug, this is a, an amazing opportunity for uh, a new guy in a position to, to chat with uh, someone who knows a lot about uh, how we got to where we are. So I thought I might just start right there. Why did it take so long for George Washington to get a presidential library? Well, thank you, Kevin. I appreciate that. And the first thing I want to say before I jump right in and answer that question, and this is going to be annoying for Kevin, I think, throughout this interview, uh, is, in fact, how excited I am to have you here, uh, you know, to get somebody to come in and, and become the executive director of the library here uh, and get someone, I think, who's very smart, very talented, a great manager of people, and, and really pleasant to be around, uh, a great scholar, uh, was a difficult... Uh, uh, a difficult thing to find, so I'm delighted you're here, and it's a big relief for me. You can keep going. Uh, yeah, well, I'm going to stop. Okay, so the question about the uh, why did it take George Washington so long to get his own presidential library? So, of course, uh, for those who don't know up there, the presidential library system is a fairly recent phenomenon in American history. It was created in the 1950s. Uh, the first presidential library, you know, really the inspiration of FDR, who thought that it would be an important thing to allow the people to come research there the essential records of their time, and FDR being so long president, uh, you know, elected four times, uh, served three and a half terms, uh, had a massive amount of papers. And so that first uh, uh, library was created. The papers are owned of all presidents after FDR, and actually it was reversed uh, backward to Hoover and I think Wilson to a certain extent. Um, they're managed by the National Archives system. So the National Archives here in Washington, D.C. actually has facilities all over the country, and they manage these records uh, uh, you know, in the interest of the American people who own them. Before that period, the presidents owned their own records, essentially. It's somewhat like the, you know, we know about the British colonial model, where these administrators would bring their papers back to their country homes. In the presidency's case, you know, these papers would go with them as their professional and public papers. And that was the case, certainly, in George Washington's time. And, and so there wasn't a library system. And by George Washington's case, uh, he comes back to Mount Vernon in 1797, and he writes to the former, well, the current Secretary of War at the time, Dr. James... Um, McHenry. McHenry, yes. I'm having a, uh, a meltdown there. Dr. James <laughs> McHenry, and he says, you know... By, there's all kinds of work being done in my state, but I have only one house to build to house his military, political, private, civil papers, which are voluminous and may be interesting. Uh, and so 
he had the idea that you know, in in some ways, not unlike FDR, that you know this this would be an important thing to keep the record straight. He was always very concerned about his reputation, and he, the reason he kept those papers so meticulously through the war was, of course, you know, he wanted to make sure he could defend any crazy bad choices he made or if things went south. You know, he would always have a record of what he did, uh, and by the time. I mean, even in the 1780s, there were people coming to Mount Vernon doing research in those war papers, writing histories of the American Revolution. The first biography written, kind of what we would call like serious biography of an American hero, was a, a book written and finished by David Humphreys here living at Mount Vernon, Colonel David Humphreys on uh, General Putnam, Israel Putnam. Hmm. And he, he wrote this book and, and sent it... Um, but it's to he sent the manuscript to the Society of Cincinnati of Connecticut, and uh, and he used the papers of George Washington to write the book. So there's all kinds of materials in that biography that were taken, you know, and copied uh, from the papers here at Mount Vernon in uh, in 1785. So I like to say, in some ways, we are the oldest presidential library. Hmm. We just have a new. Uh, a new building in place. And David Humphreys was, was our first research fellow. That's right. That's right. And the, I think he was treated a lot better than our current research fellows, <laughs> although they have it pretty good, as you know. That's right. They live here in a house, and they get um, uh, a lot of praise and accolades. They get lots of money. They get uh, invited to lots of things. And so we like family. Uh, we do. Yeah, <clears> so then, <throat> so to get back to your question, <clears throat> why did it take so long? Uh, so our presidential library for George Washington is not part of the National Archive System. Okay, so uh, we are fully private, managed by the Mount Vernon Ladies Association of the Union, which is a private nonprofit educational institution that you know came together originally in the 1850s to save George Washington's house, and uh, and they decided uh, before I got here. Uh, they decided that, well, George Washington needed his own presidential library, and, and, and they were going to do it. They wanted to sponsor scholarship and education and put a real strong emphasis on the importance of civic education for democracy. Uh, they wanted to make this a place that would protect his legacy in, in the broad sense of the meaning of that, not as a place of, of hagiography um, or uh, a temple to worship Washington, but rather a place to to research the past, to understand the past better to debate uh, contemporary issues related in, in that broad context, mm -hmm. um, to research all aspects of Washington's life and, and world with the um, firm confidence uh, that uh, any subject in his era you know, will help shine a light on his relevance and significance. Uh, and and uh, and I think it's been a tremendous success so far. That's right. Oh, I, and, and the the five years that take us back to, to 2013, I, I uh, came in uh, as the, the new executive director right at the five-year mark for the library. Uh, when you think back to those early moments, 2012, 2013, uh, what do you remember? What stands out to you about the, 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 the origins moment? Uh, yeah, I mean, I th for me, there's really three kind of things I think about in that very beginning. Of course, I was uh, having a major transition like you from being a tenured uh, professor at a university system to becoming into, you know, this nonprofit institution, which however is somewhat quite corporate in our mm -hmm. environment here, which I think I like and and uh, gives us a, a nice bound in professionalism around what we do. But it's different, mm -hmm. and so you know, for me, there was the whole kind of um, the challenge of managing this new staff of people in this new context and and trying to get everybody working together 
pulling on the oars, going in the right direction as we're launching this this extraordinary new library, which had a lot of hopes and dreams behind it and a lot of enthusiastic support behind it, a lot of money behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they weren't really clear what it was going to do. Um, so that was one of the big things five years ago, I think, was sort of my own uh, concerns of how would I do in in terms of building that staff and driving them forward with some kind of vision uh, to really to really realize the dreams of the Ladies Association to make this into a living, breathing, not only research facility but you know venue for leadership training and uh, you know rethink our entirely our educational programs with teachers, uh, build a digital program and and uh, you know the. The, the digital presence of George Washington's story on the web. So it was a, uh, it was really exciting. But I have to admit, I, I mean, I was pretty trepidatious about um, about that aspect of it. So that that comes very vividly back to mind because mm-hmm. I think, like you, you know, it, it just there's just so much to learn here about the culture of this place and the different people and what they're doing. And you know, that's that's it takes time. You know, you're not going to get it overnight. Mount Vernon has a long history. It does. And, uh, and the staff here is great. And, uh, and so there's a great opportunity to, to mold them, but they're, you know, they're, uh, they're skeptical at times, I think. So you got to be able to bring them along. Um, but it was an exciting time is, you know, the, the other big thing that comes out there was for me, um, the excitement of the the glamour of it, you know, I was you know I was listed in the Washingtonian magazine as one of the people we want to have dinner with as the new direct the founding director of this new presidential library. Wow! In the same issue with Jeff Bezos, who just bought the Washington Post. I mean, it's insane. It doesn't make any sense. So you know, coming from obscurity as a professor, <laughs> yeah, of course, all of a sudden, you know, and it's just like the spotlight, and we had this. You know, we had this gala events, and you know, and Vince Gill and Matina McBride sang "America the Beautiful." And Vince Gill sang here. My wife and I rode around in a golf cart around Mount Vernon with them. You know, singing the Battle of New Orleans after the uh, the uh, evening was over, and you know, I got David McCullough was out here as the inaugural lecturer of the opening of the library that morning. I was on Fox and Friends, and I was interviewed by all these international. News media outlets. I was on Chuck Todd's show at the time, which was what was it called? It was before he was the head of Meet the Press. But you know, Kurt Gribrands, my uh, you know, hired me, the former CEO here, uh, and I were yeah out there being interviewed that morning, live CN, C-SPAN, live TV coverage, fifty-five million you know media mentions that week. And wow. It was just like the glamour was. Uh, I mean, that's one of the things I remember. You say, what do you remember five years ago? Yeah. It's like. Oh my God! You're not in Kansas anymore. You know, wow. it was uh, it was it was cool. And the third thing that comes to mind is just the building itself. It's an extraordinary structure. You got forty four thousand square feet here. Right away, I learned that part of my job was to be a tour guide. I mean, I gave a tour, you know, within a couple of weeks of being here, and I had to explain like where, where the wood came from and. Why we had a presidential library? Yeah. <laughs> you know, why did it take George Washington so long to get a presidential <laughs> library? Sure. I mean, you know, what are you going to do here? What's the mission? And you know, show me all the bi- all the all the parts of the building, and what what do you like best about the collection? And, yeah, you know, so the the building you know has a personality of its own in my mind uh, because when I first got here, <clears throat> I think my first day of work was August fifteenth, and the building was open for habitation. Uh, you know, by the by, the permitting maybe the next day or two days after that. So I was the first one in the building. 
Hmm. And, uh, and and I just begun at Mount Vernon as well. So though I used to say, you know, although I'm one of the more recent employees, I was the I've been the longest employee in the library wow. in, in this yeah. in this structure. And at that time, we didn't have all the paneling in. We didn't have the great busts in the reading room installed yet. I think they were still coming or off gassing. Uh, you know, we had we didn't have the stone floor finished and treated. Uh, it had to had sealer put on it, and because of that, we couldn't put any books. We didn't have any books in the library, <laughs> and we're opening in five weeks. You know, and it, and it just got closer and closer, and the, no books yet. No books. We can't bring them in yet. The the vault area where we keep the rare manuscripts and rare books and materials, you know, it's got to be kept at a certain temperature and humidity level, and you got to you know all the pollutants out of there. And we couldn't put the books in there because. Uh, we had to seal the stone floor, and then there was all this beautiful wood that was installed. Um, you know, the, there's great in that room. There's mahogany and cherry, and then there's the beautiful tables. Well, all those have to they have to off gas before they go in there, uh, which is a term I never heard of before I got here. Uh, which Kevin, uh, uh, do you know what you're, he's shaking his head? I, I, I'm I, I, I'm imagining that it involves uh, a little bit of seasoning time. Does that sound about yeah, right? I don't yeah, know. exactly. Yeah. That these are manufactured products that go in and they have they have to release their you know their potent parts over a period of time before <laughs> the, you know you want them around collections items that are being preserved in a right. very high level. Right. So basically, long story short, I mean, it really wasn't until a day or two days or maybe three days before the opening of the library that we you installed the George Washington's books, you know, the manuscript boxes. So I remember that, that hectic run up to the building, and then the building's you know impression in my life goes on after that because we had a series of complications with the AV. I mean, it's a state of the art building. But because it was state of the art, it's also complicated in many ways, and um, more that can go wrong. Yeah, right. And you know, I've got a building full of librarians and people who are experts in teaching folks and a historian like myself, and you know, and, and great people. But you know, we we've got lots of technical issues here, and and so we have to, you know, calling IT all the time and making a nuisance of ourselves to make sure the beautiful uh, Rubenstein Hall with its Christie microtile screen is working all the time and. And so you want to, we're brand new, but we want to we want to be great. You know, we want everybody who comes here to think this is the greatest presidential library ever. And so any kind of flaws, you know, when the mics drop during a public program or the screen turns off and flickers, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of heartburn for me in the, yeah. the opening season of the library. Wow. Because I couldn't get anything to work. I thought there was like a ghost here. So. <laughs> uh, but anyway, but yeah, but it was, um, those are kind of the three things I that come to mind when I think about five years ago. All right, so you get this library. It's it's up and running after September 27th, 2013. Mm-hmm. Um but it's a, it's not a finished product, right? You want it to grow. You want it to, to become something more than what it is on day one. Um, so tell me a little bit about that story. Uh, and, and for one thing, I, I know that, that uh, your time here and my time for the next many years is going to be efforts to, to bring things back to Mount Vernon that have scattered to the four winds over the previous couple of centuries. Um, in that effort, in that in that effort to to expand our collections, to bring uh, things back, uh, what stands out to you as some of the, something really exciting that we were able to to bring back home to Mount Vernon, or an acquisition that that you you uh, you still get goosebumps when you think about anything like that? Hmm. Well, so the it, one of the exciting things in the job that I never got to do as a professor at, at Binghamton was to purchase things at auction, you know, to buy. <laughs> 
buy 18th century materials, real the real letters, the real stuff. Obviously, I'd researched in libraries all over the world, and that was a helpful context for me as I thought and worked with Mark Santangelo and his team about what what as a research library, what did we need to provide for scholars who came here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that excitement of, oh, we got a collections budget and we can purchase things and there's all these George Washington items that are coming up for auction or in private hands that are offered to us by dealers. And our mission here is, of course, um, to support the legacy of George Washington. We're his presidential library. We want to make sure our collections are robust and we want to get things in private hands safely into our collection. Mm-hmm. Um and so we had to kind of rethink the collections strategies, which before the library, you know, had focused particularly around George Washington's experience with Mount Vernon. Obviously, we're Mount Vernon. Right. You know, uh, his letters and items related to the story of Mount Vernon were, were crucially important. Um, but with this being a presidential library, now we could we should be collecting on his leadership and his presidency and his, you know, his early years and, and uh, his pre-Mount Vernon years in a way that... Um, we hadn't been as aggressive about it unless it was some great item that could be, you know, maybe put in the museum. Hmm. But building a research collection is quite different, of course, than, than building a museum exhibit collection. Um, so thinking all through all that was very, you know, it, it was exciting because it was happening in real time as things were coming up for auction. Yeah. And the first item we purchased uh, when, when, after the library opened was something we call the Fairfax Ledger. Okay. And I had done a lot of work on the history of the Chesapeake and particularly the economics uh, of the trade of the Chesapeake. Uh, and I immediately, when this came across my desk, I immediately understood how rare it was. And, and first of all, it was a ledger book from uh, Potomac River planters, in this case the two Fairfaxes, William Fairfax and, and uh, George William Fairfax. Um, George Washington's good friends, obviously William Fairfax is George Washington's mentor. Um, their dealings with the West Indies. Essentially, they would trade with the West Indies, hmm. and this included, you know, not only basically the ship manifests of items they had sent to the West Indies, but also things they had purchased and brought into the river. And, of course, they were working closely with the Washingtons, so there was, you know, there's an enslaved person in, listed in there that Lawrence Washington purchased. There was... Uh, from the West Indies. From the West Indies. There was George... There was a lot of furniture there that came in, and this might have been from London, actually, into the Potomac, because it's the Fairfax Ledger, so they're keeping track of, of what they're acquiring. Uh, you know, of, of acquisitions uh, for the house at Belvoir next door, a lot of which would end up in Mount Vernon, ultimately, because mm-hmm. uh, uh, when they auctioned them off, you know, George Washington was a big purchaser. It was actually during the non-importation time. So the only way you could get good stuff was to buy it from your neighbors who were leaving. Right. Uh, in that case... Um, our curatorial team here, I think particularly Adam Irby, you know, had looked at this uh, potential ledger and helped us understand, you know, some of those aspects of it. And so we, we knew right away we were going to go after it. And, and, you know, but the problem is, okay, so what is this worth to us, uh, this extraordinary one-of-a-kind thing? You mean gonna, in, in dollar terms? Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. It's an auction. So, you know, the, the auction houses list what, you know, what they think it will go for. And I think when auction catalogs do this in a couple of different strategies, sometimes they try to inflate what they think the thing will, will go for to drive interest. On the other hand, uh, sometimes they're working with the owner of the item, who, you know, and they, they're basically laying out a reserve range. Mm-hmm. Um, each auction house, I think, is a little bit different in how they do it. 
No, but you're right. As a researcher, you go into the uh, a library and, and look at some rare material. You know it's one of a kind. Uh, you 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 use it. You you work it into your your own project that, and you think of it as, as priceless, as something that that's absolutely essential. And yet, uh, priceless, while it certainly is, um, is very different from also having to assign how many uh, how many of Mount Vernon's resources are we going to put to this one acquisition? Exactly yeah. right, and that's exactly it. It's sort of like what what is the proper value we put on this? I mean, so in our case. You know, we look at obviously the market value, what we think it will go for. What did it go? You know, if it has if it has a provenance at all, and this didn't. I mean, this is something that just came out of nowhere. Hmm. Um, you know, so you know what? But in many cases, you can say, well, what did this sell for in nineteen whatever ninety, and then in two thousand, and you know, what was the last sale? And yeah. you know, so you have a sense of its relative value over different eras. Uh, you know, but ultimately in auctions, you know, it only takes two to tango to drive up the price of something. Sure. And you just need some other person who wants it, who's willing to enable, as the economists would say, willing and able to spend. Yeah. And uh, and the price could go anywhere. So we have to be very, you know, um, disciplined in our approach where we'll set this is the amount of money, the maximum we're willing to spend. Uh, and then and then you just sort of. Cross your fingers. In that case, it was a it was a phone auction. Okay. Or, or so we were on the phone in the in the time of the auction, and it was um, Michelle Lee at the time, who was the um, rare books um, special collections librarian at the time, and she was on the auction. And I got an email from her. I think it was on a Saturday, and she, she we got it. You know, so we got the. That's great. We got it. Was very exciting. Uh, very exciting. But very quickly, and after that, you know, we had a series of extraordinary discoveries and acquisitions. There was this great document by the end of that year, an unknown document in George Washington's hand describing the enslaved people at the Dogue uh, Creek Plantation complex that he had rented for 15 years from, the, from a neighboring family, the French family, in which he created this list of them because he's returning them essentially he's getting out of completely out of tobacco mm-hmm. he's returning them and I mean this is in the context of him really organizing his estate in 1799 it's at the same moment he wrote this tremendous census of all the enslaved people here where he's listing who are the dowry slaves that is to say the slaves owned by the Custis estate mm-hmm. so his wife's dowry that brought were brought into the family that he did not own uh, and and then his own uh, slaves, uh, you know, so listing all these out. And so this was an unknown addition to that uh, great census, which really filled in the whole picture um, and and came up again for auction, an unknown, really only partially documented manuscript, uh, which with just tremendous uh, research value to it and uh, obviously very important value to Mount Vernon. And we were able to get that for two hundred thousand dollars. I remember. Wow. wow. You know, because that's a, that's the problem is that George Washington items. I mean, they go for you know, hundreds of thousands just for one letter. I mean, a signature of George Washington on a grocery receipt you can get <laughs> for seven thousand dollars. Wow. And then you you start getting into the like great letters we've gotten from him, like some of my favorites, the letters from the uh, the Chateau archive in France, George Washington mm-hmm. to the Marquis of Chateau. The last one we got there, and it's a great letter in which George Washington says to Chateau, "My soul clave to you like no man, uh, and we have a friendship which neither time nor distance can eradicate." Uh, that letter went for two hundred fifty thousand dollars. That's amazing. Yeah. So we, it, it, but it's a credible challenge for us because we, you know, we have to find this money, and we are a nonprofit institution. And, 
And uh, you know, we have a we have a budget that comes out of an endowment for manuscripts, but that really only pulls off uh, uh, one hundred fifty thousand or so a year. So right there, you you know, you can't buy those letters without finding more. And uh, and so there's always it's like feeding the beast here. It's always hungry, always eager, and the librarians always got a brilliant new letter they found somewhere. So and I think it probably surprises people that things uh, are are appearing in yeah. the way you're describing from out of nowhere. And and the, uh, uh, the I mean that was my impression, right? I mean because look, the papers of George Washington Project that's been going on since 1968. Absolutely. First thing they did was find every a copy of every letter in the world. Mm-hmm. That was an ongoing process that took a decade. I think they did it again in the 90s. I mean, I think they they do it sort of periodically. Yeah. So the idea that there's George Washington items out there that are undocumented, first of all, I found that to be just remarkable. Yeah. And I think, you know, the first time it happened, which was the slavery document I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm on the phone with the board explaining, like, this doesn't happen. These these, <laughs> these don't exist, you know. Unknown Washington items are impossible to find. And then I had to have the same conversation, like, five months later. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, when we purchased the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the financial papers of the Potomac Navigation Company, it's like, this doesn't happen. These things, we never find George Washington items that nobody's ever seen before. <laughs> this is amazing. And so at a certain point, uh, they stopped believing me. Right, right. <laughs> but, but I can't believe but I still can't believe this stuff. But people, you know, there's stuff that people have on their wall that, you know, they never heard about the papers project and they never got that that letter looking right. for what do you have in your archive related to George Washington, you know. Uh, but George Washington was so beloved and so collectible from such an early age that, um, you know, that these families would put these things on their walls and they'd be a family heirloom and there they'd be forever until all of a sudden... Yeah, somebody needs to go to college, and they uh, this thing gets auctioned off. Um, now, of course, we've also had great letters be given to us over mm-hmm. the last few years, and we would always prefer people to to give the give us letters that we can take care of here and become part of a context that makes a lot of sense, and they would get lots of love and attention for that, and really become part of the story here at Mount Vernon. That's one of my most uh, fun aspects of the job is is inviting people to become part of this extraordinary. Story, this extraordinary place, because they they want to be, and uh, and it's and it's crucial to uh, and crucial to us all. One of the uh, the things that that surprised you, surprised me, is is the sort of manuscript record of Washington that is these new discoveries, um, and it's something that I just I, I agree with you. I, I think I walked in with a mis- misperception, mm-hmm. but. Um, out in the world, uh, let's let's take a step back and look at George Washington himself as a historical figure. Are there misperceptions out there that you uh, feel like uh, are part of our mission at Mount Vernon is, uh, might be to address? Are there things that you think the scholarly community, the general public, mm. still get wrong about Washington? What, what stands out to you if you think along those lines? Yeah, well, that's a great question, Kevin, and it's something that... Uh you know, I've become passionate about over the time being here. When I arrived, you know, I've you know, written a book on politics and the founding era, and so I've I read that book. I have a real thank you very much. So you're the one. That's good. <laughs> That's how you got the job. Uh, the, one of the things that becomes, you know, I, so I've read the founders. I mean, I know the historiography, I know the stories well, but I, I even I completely underestimated the role of George Washington as a as what I would call a shaper of events, uh, as hmm. driving the action in a way. Um, I mean, he's there, obviously. You know, he's the guy on horseback, and he's you know he's the head of the, the Continental Army. But oftentimes, we tell that as a story about John Adams. You know, appointing him 
or dominating him, or we right. tell it as a story of the British doing this and that and the other thing. In fact, he's an incredibly um, potent leader who, who creates. I mean, he creates the Continental Army. He creates the strategy and, and executes it in tandem with others. You know, mm-hmm. in, in a way that he leads. He leads by listening. He leads by bringing people together and executing in an extraordinary fashion. He's he's the one that is driving the events of the American Revolutionary War. Uh, in some cases, you know, uh, we see him as reacting, of course, because the British are you know, doing what they're doing and he's reacting. Um, but I, I think looking closely at him as, as, a, as a leader, which has been a, a concept that, you know, really never thought much about leadership in that sense until coming here, Washington really comes to the fore, and everybody at the time and his contemporaries recognized him in that way. And he had, you know, people that dismissed him in some cases, but the vast majority uh, revered him and came to really respect him. Um, I think when you get into the presidency, it's even worse in the uh, in in the scholarly community, and in, in the way he's treated in his presidency is sort of like, um, I mean, he's 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 sort of a, 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 a bit player in his own. Administration, you know, hmm. it's a story about Jefferson and, and Hamilton. In fact, you know, I, I see some of our great friends, scholars out there. They teach these freshman seminars at places, and they they call them like Hamilton and Jefferson. Or, yeah. you know, I mean, this is the age of Washington. They they are players in his drama, and uh, I mean, he's there throughout the whole presidency. They're not, you know, and he's yeah. driving events. And that first whole year when the when the country's being. You know, you go from the Constitution to the creation of the of the government. Um, you know, it's him working with James Madison. It's there. You know, Jefferson's not even on the scene. He's not even, you know, in uh, New York until you know 1791, I think. I mean, so he misses like the first year and a half of the yeah. administration. And, and you know, so if you tell the story of Washington's administration from the perspective of these two guys, you're going to miss. Uh, a lot about um, about the the way he's driving events, and even if you read Jefferson uh, once he's on the scene, uh, mm-hmm. reflecting on the on the cabinet meetings and and uh, 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 much of it he's writing uh, decades later, and he still remembers Washington as collecting opinions, but then acting on them, and sometimes disregarding yeah. uh, a, a consensus opinion of the cabinet. That's right, absolutely. And then there's other things he's doing without you know consulting them as much, particularly early on. I mean, I think he gets better over time at figuring out how to use the cabinet uh, as a consultative body, particularly during the uh, Genet crisis. Mm-hmm. That's you know, I mean, what is that? Four or five years in? Yeah. Um, but you know, you take like a typical story that's written about the the presidency is the title controversy, right? Right, the title controversy. What do we call the president? Yeah, right. What are we going to call him, Mr. President? Is is his high mightiness? You know, the great <laughs> prince of America or whatever, you know, John Defender Adams. Of our liberties. John Adams features very prominently in this story. Of course. And yeah. I think it's a very important story to understand, the, you know, the, the, the style of that government and, and the confusion folks had about what this office is. And, and, you know, because the styling of these offices are crucial. I mean, they're, they're part of the way power is, uh, is imagined, distributed, et cetera. And obviously it would go, you know, just having Mr. President is a big deal. In, in, in our long-term context of you know, our, our democracy. But if you, you know, if you take the perspective of George Washington in that moment of the title controversy, uh, what is he doing? 
well, he's actually dealing with Native American affairs and particularly deeply involved in the Creek um, the treaty negotiations mm-hmm. and trying to figure that out, trying to figure out what we should be doing in the Ohio Valley, where, of course, we're going to do some, we're going to send an army out that gets destroyed and all this. His experience of that moment in time, the title controversy, is fleeting at best. I mean, he's not... He doesn't care. He's not involved in it. He's, He's very upset with the idea that you know, there, you know, Adams wants him to be called the king of the universe or whatever. He, you know, yeah. the, his most high mightiness, or something like that. Yeah, that's right. You know, so, but it's it's not his. You know, it's not the focus of that administration. So the story of Washington's presidency, the story of his administration, the same way we would write about FDR or Jack Kennedy. You don't write about you know the uh, the cabinet members as a way to drive the story forward. Right. And I still think, you know, we, we, we haven't had that great study of Washington's administration with him as, you know, in the captain's seat. Um, so, I, you know, so I feel like uh, on the, the, the American people more generally don't really know much about George Washington other than superficially. And I blame Washington in large part for that because he kept people at arm's length. He didn't mm-hmm. he didn't. Uh, he didn't open up to his own generation, and so he was this he was this commanding figure uh, in marble, on horseback, uh, on the dollar bill. You know, his right. monument is abstract. It's you know, it, it stands for um, what? It stands for all time. I mean, you know, it's an obelisk. Yeah. I mean, the Lincoln Memorial has got the man in there in a chair, surrounded by his words. Right. The Jefferson Memorial has a man with words surrounding him. They didn't even have a statue of Washington in the Washington Monument until the 1990s when they put the, oh, the great Cincinnati wow. statue in there. Yeah. And his words, you know, I, I mean, he's got incredible words. As you, you know, the more I read and the more I know, there's extraordinary great uh, letters and, and public pronouncements and private letters. I mean, yeah. um, public pronouncements, the Turo letter, of course, is, is uh, crucially important. The farewell address, his first inaugural, written... In in tandem with James Madison, I think that's the other thing is we talk about Hamilton writing this or Madison writing that. I mean, it's clear this is the mind of Washington that's being, you know, be, being translated into these things. This isn't. It's just like you know, like Kennedy's inaugural was written by a speechwriter. I mean, sure. yet we call it Kennedy's. You know, ask not what your country can do, yep. what you can do for your country. That's not Kennedy who wrote that. You know, it's so. Um, Washington, for some reason, you know, doesn't have the capture the same imagination of the American people. In that well, and one of those reasons uh, may be that the the sort of private emotional side that we see in John Adams's diaries or in Jefferson's mm-hmm. uh, windows into Jefferson's life that we yeah. have, yeah. Uh, we lack a lot of those with Washington. That's right. Uh, and and That's one right. of the one of the real treasures that we have here at the library is is one uh, tiny uh, fragment of his relationship with his wife. Uh, one of the only surviving letters because she burned their correspondence as was not uncommon at the time, but it certainly is a loss for our uh, access into the private side of Washington. And I'm still said, hopeful that those letters are going to be discovered in the in the ice well in the basement of Mount Vernon, which has never been excavated. That's amazing. And it could be like the Dead Sea Scrolls down there. She could have stuck them in a jar and chucked them in the basement. And then, and then you don't even have to buy them at auction. Yeah. This is great. Because we don't know that they were actually burned. I mean, it's wow. not like a burnt remnant. <laughs> uh, uh, right. Oh, this is exciting. 
Well, there's a lot that's exciting about this uh, the, the library as we enter uh, the next five years. Uh, but thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to to chat with your successor. Tell me a little bit about the origin stories and and, and with the the world uh, out there. Uh, but it, it's it's fascinating for me. It's important for me. Uh, George Washington comes into the presidency, doesn't have an opportunity to have a conversation with his predecessor. Mm. He had no predecessor. Uh, you had some. You had some of those same challenges. Uh, I'm not comparing you or, or putting you in the company of Washington, but you had some of the same challenges. No predecessor. Ouch, I have the amazing opportunity to just chat with my predecessor about uh, lessons learned and, and experiences uh, um, in the past. So this is this has been amazing. Well, Thank you'd you like so it much. better probably if, if uh, your predecessor wasn't your boss now. I mean, well, there is be, that. That would there be more that. fun for you, I think, to be able to chat with me. But it's all, it's also. Uh, well, I'm going to try. I'm going to commit now, and we'll put. This on on record. You know, okay. I'm, I, uh, I I think you're going to take the library to heights that I couldn't take it. I mean, that's why you're here. I think you're going to build this reputation and grow the scholarship and you know, and build you know build the team and move it forward. And so I'm really excited to see you in that role. And I you know and I'm going to let you do it. And I'm not going to tell you. Too much about uh, yeah, that's a terrible choice. Well, those those are the goals, and 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 thank I, you. I will tell you this: I mean, for people listening sure. out there, so one of the big challenges of a job uh, like yours and and my current job as well is sort of how do you manage great ideas? You know, managing good good ideas and great ideas. You know, because you, uh, you want to have a uh, you want to have an open, transparent relationship with this very dynamic staff here, very mm-hmm. creative staff who have great ideas, and you want to provide an environment whereby great ideas can can actually you know get done and you know do do things with. Um, on the other hand, uh, everybody's got a lot of ideas, and, mm. uh, and 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 even a lot of great ideas are just not things that we should be trying to do or can do. Or are strategically sensible, you know. Right. So, so managing managing uh, ideas is, is is one of the challenges, and some of those ideas might be coming from your boss mm-hmm. or the board, you know. And so, as the director of the library, you really have to have a strong handle on what you think the strategic goals of this institution should be, so that when an, a great idea comes along, and you just can't fit it into um, that universe, you might have to just say, you know, that's a great idea, but we don't, we can't uh, do that right now. It's like the finite resources at an auction. You can only buy so much, you can only bring uh, uh, so many resources to bear on one goal. Yeah, But, but if you don't have that strong sense, I think you can end up just doing a lot of different stuff. Yeah. And a lot of different stuff can be great, but it's not... It, it, you know, it's not more than the sum of its parts. Right. It has to kind of come together in some unifying way to drive towards a vision you have for the place. And, uh, and that's what I'm excited to see you uh, figure out. I'm excited to do it. Uh, yeah. uh, thank you for the opportunity. And, and I have to say, um, uh, the, the the opportunity to have the, the president and CEO of, of Mount Vernon um, have a real love and passion for this library uh, puts me in a great spot. It means that uh, that when I I come and talk to you about the need to uh, to maybe bring some of Mount Vernon's resources to bear for this library goal, that uh, you'll understand what I'm talking about, and you'll uh, you got a lot of uh, um, uh, things to weigh it against. Uh, we have uh, an amazing uh, amazing estate here with lots of moving parts, but the library uh, is 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 off and running uh, thanks to your leadership, and I'm excited to take it to the next step. Thanks for sitting down with me. You've got a great staff. That's the key. We really do. More than 20 people who are doing amazing stuff day in and day out. 
um, my, uh, uh, my, my real goal for the last five weeks as I've been getting my feet on the ground is to talk to each of them about what they do, how they do it. And, uh, and I, I, I have walked away from every one of those meetings uh, with, with great respect for what's happening here. So uh, you put together a great team. I now have a great team. Uh, everything's going wonderfully. We're going to do great things. I know you're trying to wrap up, so I'll let you have the last word. Well, thank you for sitting down with me. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm really looking forward to the next five years, right. and uh, happy to chat with you. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.